You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good morning, Redemption. Happy Palm Sunday. That was terrible. No, <laughs> I know there's no like script. Like you guys don't know. What do we say? Happy, and also to you. Um, so uh, next week is Easter, which means this week is Palm Sunday. So uh, in the like biblical calendar, as, as we think about resurrection happens a week from today, that means today is the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem to conquer the capital city. Like it's, it's capital insurrection at its best, um, except it's not violence and power and conquering, it's giving and being conquered and being the one who is slaughtered. So every year on Palm Sunday, we mention that it's Palm Sunday, and churches throughout the world celebrate the uh, craziness of this Son of God who comes to win and to conquer and to rule, and then within a week is despised and rejected and murdered by his people, by his peers, abandoned by his friends. There's a huge change between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. And part of what we find ourselves doing here this morning as we preach the next to last sermon in the Gospel of Mark that we've been in for uh, almost two years, um, what, what we find ourselves doing is preaching about the cross of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus on the day that is meant to be Palm Sunday. So if you go to like a bunch of like super liturgical churches, they have like branches and palms and there's like celebration and procession and like entering the capital triumphantly. Um, we don't do that because we're not cool enough for that. Um, and yet, there's part of me that feels a little bit of, wait, are, are we celebrating Jesus? Or in viewing these last breaths of Jesus' life, are we meant to feel really bad today? Um, I, I don't know. Maybe I project a bunch on you guys. Um, but, but as I grew up and thought about like what the gospel was, and what God wanted from me, and what communion was every week. Like the big warning was, hey, if you do not feel sufficiently terrible about yourself this morning, then you better not take communion. What we're going to do before you take communion is you are going to look inwardly and revile yourself sufficiently so that God doesn't strike you down as you take communion, which like is sort of a caricature, but not at all a caricature. This is the theology that many of us internalize 
and imbibe and like live our lives and honestly develop our personalities in. Like we develop our sense of psychological safety in, our sense of self in, our sense of family in. How do we deal with conflict? Like all of this arises from who do we think God really is and what do we think he really expects And that comes to the fore on a day like Palm Sunday where we're celebrating triumphant procession, uh, triumphal procession while also seeing Jesus die on a cross. Okay, so that's where we're going this morning. Um, But let me, uh, let me preface it with, um, well, about 20 more minutes of stuff. (laughs) Like, I wish I was kidding. Okay, so... Ah, okay. I promise I'm not going to be that long today. But the problem with preaching about the cross of Jesus is that the New Testament says the cross of Jesus is everything. And so as a preacher who's already rather long-winded and scatterbrained, um, I find myself wanting to say everything I've ever said. So here we go. Okay, here's actually the way I want to start. As, as we come to questions of what is happening on the cross, what is the cross about? How do we make sense of this senseless historical fact? Um, I actually want to begin with the fundamental idea that I want to insist that we not stray from, which is the idea that God is love. God is our home. God is our safety. God is the one who made us and is our all. Like, I, I preach to you guys. More than that, I pray and I sing with you guys. Not like over and above and in front of you guys, but as one of you guys, I worship week after week after week alongside you guys because I believe this. God is my all. He is my everything. He is my true home. He is my freedom and my liberation and my joy. And I am made for nothing else other than communion and fellowship and intimacy and friendship and love with this divine being who upholds us moment by moment by moment. Amen and hallelujah, right? That's the God I know That's the God I love. That's the God I worship. And in fact, that is the God that also reveals himself most purely, most brilliantly, most senselessly on the cross. But before we jump into um, the Gospel of Mark together this morning, let me actually read you a couple of things. I'm not going to put a bump on on the screen because. I want to do it kind of fast, but um, really what I want to do is I want to remind you of some things that the early church believed about the cross. Now, sometimes uh, we're like, but what does the cross have to do with the love of God? Isn't the cross just where God like so spewed with rage and hatred that he finally like had his top burst and he had to pour it out on somebody and so it got poured out on Jesus? And, and what, what the warning is, is that what happened to Jesus is also going to happen to you if you don't repent and confess and believe in Jesus in a sufficient way with the sufficient theological parameters that at the end of all things, eventually that same hatred and wrath is going to be poured out on you in the exact same way. Oh yeah, by the way, God is love. 
And, and we end up with this, with this dissonance of not quite knowing what, then what, what do we make of the cross? What's, what's the purpose of the cross? What's the place of the cross? What is, what is happening on the cross? And so sometimes because we emphasize God's love and because we emphasize God's grace, we, we can be tempted to, to not hear words about the cross or to be a little bit ashamed of them or be confused by them or like minimize them somehow. And, and I never want to be conf- uh, uh, accused of that I, I never want to be understood by you guys as uh, implying that we should do that. What, what I want to do is I want to reevaluate everything you think you know about the cross in the lens of the actual New Testament's understanding of, of the cross. I don't want to denigrate the cross or ignore the cross or minimize the cross. I want to lift the cross up as central to our theology of the love of God. Not in this way where we like start to couch and recast everything as, well, even if I punched you in the mouth, if I did it for the right reason, then that's love. Which is like what passes for love, especially on Twitter. Please stay off Twitter. Um, But if you're on there with me, um, what what happens is lots of times we, we defend ourselves as, I'm just speaking the truth in love. And I think what happens in our legislatures and with some of these crazy bills that are being passed, um, that are like going to spike suicide rates and ostracization of um, all sorts of like hurting and confused and uh, struggling kids. I, I think part of what's happening in, in the religious world as, as we try to figure out how to process this and justify this and defend this in this culture war is, well, we're just speaking the truth in love. And what happens is suddenly we've applied the name love to something that doesn't feel at all like love And then we point back to the cross and we're like, yeah, but this is the love of God. His love is hot, burning, hatred, wrath. And we're like, but wait, what do we do about that? So all all I want to do is is suggest we cannot throw out the cross. Nevertheless, the cross isn't about God's hate. It is, in fact, about his love. So, So let me emphasize the first of these first which is not really in the Gospel of Mark, although in the Gospel of Mark, it's, it's there, right? The emphasis on the cross of Jesus is there in Mark. One, because Jesus keeps telling us himself, hey, you realize I'm about to be crucified. I'm gonna be dead for three days, and then I'm not going to be dead anymore. And he tells his followers, his friends, his beloved companions over and over and over and over and over, I came to lay down my life for you. I came to die for you. I came to be crucified for you. I'm going to be crucified. Yeah, Lord, we get it. I came to be crucified. Yeah, Lord, we get it. I came to be crucified. And, and then, just like percentage-wise, um, Mark is 16 chapters. We're wrapping up 15 this week. We'll finish 16 next week. Uh, out of those 16 chapters, this last week of Palm Sunday through Easter is chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. And that's before we, we consider the fact that Jesus has already been teaching about and preparing his people for the fact that he's going to be crucified. This last week of the life of Jesus is central to our understanding of who Jesus is, what the gospel is, and who God himself is. Here, here are the words of Paul. Here, in Galatians 6.14, he says, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the cosmos has been crucified to me and I to the cosmos. Okay, I'm not preaching on Galatians this morning, although part of me wishes that I was. Um, but, but can I just point out that this statement about the cross. Paul says, far be it from me 
to boast about anything except the cross of Jesus. He stipulates that there is a threefold crucifixion going on. He says, the cross of Jesus, that's one, Jesus was crucified. In it, I was crucified to the world, number two, and at the same time, the world was crucified to me. Somehow in the theology of the cross, of understanding what is happening on Good Friday, wow, it's really windy out there. Um, this is the really distracting thing about having the windows open is I'm like, cool, we're like midst of the storm, biblical, prophetic, I don't know. Um, so there is this threefold crucifixion. Paul says, this is central to my theology. Far be it from me to boast about anything except the cross of Christ, because in the cross of Christ, I also was crucified to the world, and the world also was crucified to me. Neither circumcision or like religious adherence and uh, obedience and identity in this covenant community, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So Paul is saying that there's somehow new creation that depends on the crucifixion of Jesus. Our conception of what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be made new? What does it mean to long for a world made new? What does it look like for us to long for justice and rightness and a world made whole? What does it look like for us to long for shalom? All of that somehow in Paul's mind comes back to the cross. Here's a longer quote for you from 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. He says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, who are being made alive together with Christ, the word of the cross is the power of God. The word of the cross is the power of God. Somehow thinking about the cross, preaching about the cross, like praying to God about the cross, ruminating on the cross, understanding the cross, like coming face to face with the God of the cross is somehow at the heart of our faith. We may think it's, it's foolishness or it's senseless or it's not understandable, and, and in some ways it is not understandable, and yet it is the power of God for salvation. Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. This is a stumbling block to the Jewish people, it's foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those of us who have been called by Jesus, whether we're Jewish, whether we're Greek, this Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. By, by God's doing, continuing on a little later, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus he became to us wisdom from God. He became righteousness. He became sanctification. He became redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Far be it from me to boast in anything other than the cross of Jesus. Then he begins chapter two with, when I came to you, my brothers and my sisters, my dearly beloved siblings in Jesus. When I came to you, I didn't come with superiority of speech. I didn't come with superiority of wisdom. I came proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, specifically him crucified. 
So Paul says the cross of Jesus is at the center of everything, and we're like, God, is the cross of Jesus really at the center of everything? Maybe not in this moment. Maybe we're piqued and intrigued in this moment, but, but I'd like you to reflect on and notice the fact that our emotional response many times is, God, the cross. Or there's like this trauma, shame, weird thing that's done in our hearts, where, which is when, when we think about the cross and we're like, God, then we're like, how awful am I? And we end up in this like self-loathing place of God must really hate me because his fury at the cross. So, um, pop quiz. What's the cringiest line of a song you can think of? Man, I wish I could take uh, polls from the audience right now, but I'm afraid that like 90% of what y'all would say would not be suitable for um, repetition. Uh, And honestly, as I brainstormed this, most of my were among the same. But... uh, some of you guys who have been on staff here for a while, you absolutely know what I'm about to say is the most cringy line of any song that I've ever heard, which is there's this famous song called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Um, and what it teaches us is that on the cross of Jesus, the Father turns his face away. Now, I, I point this out not to shame you, but to say this is at the heart of most of our understanding of what happens on the cross. So much so that we sing this song and we're like, praise Jesus, the Father turned his face away from him on the cross. Um, and, and y'all are like, but what, what kind of heretical church am I sitting in? <laughs> right, like, like there's part of us of, wait, can we not sing this? Is that not what happened on the cross? No, that is absolutely not what happened on the cross. Because the cross isn't about God's hate. I'm still in my preface here, right? I told you I was going to be 20 minutes. Um, it hasn't been 20 yet. Uh, yet. So l- 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 let, me, let me add to our preface a little bit, right? I've kind of stipulated, hey, God is about love. God is our true home. And then there's this problem of what do we do with the cross? Let, let me start to give you a little bit of like theological machinery of how I think about this and how maybe you can also think about this. Actually, let's start with the same idea. Love is the essence of the Trinitarian God. Like, divine communion is the being and essence and existence of the God who upholds all things. What I mean by that is, uh, man, now I'm like, how much do I go into this? Um, Let me go into it for just a little bit because I think it's amazing. Maybe you will too. Um, I think lots of times we think about Father, Son, and Spirit in very atomized, individualized ways, in in ways that I think uh, are wrongheaded and reveal how little we understand about the fact that communion is at the heart of the universe. Because communion, like divine fellowship, like knowing and being known, loving and being loved, relating, relationality, communion is at the heart of the universe because communion is at the heart of what it means for God to be God. You see, when, when most of us think about what does it mean for God to be God, if we had to like go and write a definition for God, especially if you spend any time in like church classes that teach us awful things about this, unfortunately, God, I don't mean to be so snarky and cynical, uh, and also, here I am. Um, so, w- 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 if, if we were to like, make a list of, of who is God, what is he like? Maybe we'd go, well, God is the Father of Jesus. We, we say some good stuff here. Or maybe we'd say, well, God is the one who is, um, he's omnipotent. 
and he's omniscient, and he's omnipresent, and he's omnibenevolent. And I'd be like, those are really four good ones. How'd you rattle those off? And they're like, because I took systematic theology at Dallas Theological Seminary. And I would say, I can tell. And, and like we would start to list off, this is the way we, we think about who God is. Um, I don't mean to speak bad about DTS. I'm a, you know, I'm a grad. I'm, it's fine. Um, God, I, I'm really not trying to be as snarky as some of this is coming out. Um, but, but here's the thing. When we think about God this way, then we're like, well, there are three beings and all of them happen to be really good, really beautiful, really powerful. And then they happen to like each other and there's three of them and we don't really know what it means for them to be one, but here we go. There's, there's three gods and they're all alike and maybe that's what their, their oneness means. You see, what we're doing is we are starting with God as an individual, and then we are attributing things to that God, and then last of all, we are asserting that that God has relationship with a couple of other beings, right? You you see, in, in this telling, which I think is the basic telling of most of us who have ever had much systematic theology training or, or gone through a class like this of what are the attributes of God, what is God like, we, we, we place this relationality last in the chain as if it's just a nice add-on, as if it's just a nice cherry on top. Interestingly, if you go back historically to the people who first taught us about the fact of God as Trinity to the early Greek fathers in the fourth and fifth centuries, they actually reversed the order and they start with relationality. Before the church had ever articulated, here's what it means for God to be God. It means that he's omnipresent and omnibenevolent and omnipotent and omniscient. Like before there was any of this construction of language, it was God is a divine relationship, yes, of perfection, yes, of beauty, yes, of everything, but God starts as relationship. We, we know that there's relationship, and we only know the Father because we know the Son, and we only know the Son because we know the Father, and because there's never been a Father without the Son, which means somehow at the heart of everything that exists is relationality. Okay, that, that's the end of my like philosophy lesson for for now. But, but here's the thing. When we say that God is love, we don't just mean that God is positively disposed towards uh, things. Although he is. Like he is loving in that way. We, we mean something more than that. That God in his very being, in what it means for him to exist and rule and, and uphold and create and be God, what, what that means is for him to love, to, to be in divine communion, to be in fellowship, to share, to be shared with, to know and to be known, to love and to be loved. To reveal. Like all the things that we think about as relational, communal, fellowship, that is what it means when we say that God is love. Okay, here's the problem. This kind of relational, communal love is the purpose of all creation because it's at the heart of who God is. So it's at the heart of everything he's ever done is more relationality, more love, more fellowship. The the reason that humanity exists, more specifically, the reason that you, specific human, exist is to participate in divine fellowship and communion forever and ever and ever. And suddenly we're back to God is my home He is my everything. He is my all. 
But something has gone wrong because we don't know that. We don't experience that. We don't live in that. Not only do we not know that with God, we don't know that with each other. Even in our safest, best relationships, there's something that falls short of perfect communion and fellowship and love. There's like fracturing that's gone on. And if the purpose of this whole thing is participation in divine fellowship, then what's happened? Part of what's happened is not just the fracturing of fellowship. The fracturing goes so far that even the people who have spent decades in and around the church and are asked, what's your purpose? What's the purpose of existing? Are like, I don't know. I guess I'm supposed to be really good. Or I guess I was supposed to be really good, but I couldn't be good enough, and so Jesus was good enough, and now, as long as I think that he was good enough, and he died the perfect death on the cross that I was supposed to die, then if I think that in just a good enough way, then eventually I'll be forgiven and get treated like I was actually good enough, because that was the point of the cosmos in the first place. And all of a sudden, we've misunderstood the nature of God, the nature of existence, the nature of our own souls, the nature of our families and our friendships and everything. You see, there's a giant problem. We don't have communion, and we don't even know that we should have communion. More than that, as we start to do any sort of introspection, as we realize, wait, my job and purpose is to commune? Yeah, Jesus told us to love, but I thought that meant to tell people off on Twitter that I thought were morons and I was speaking the truth in love. Wait, I'm, I'm supposed to love? Right, so one, one of these like, really powerful metaphors Jesus uses in the Gospel of John is he says, come and make your home in me. Abide in me. Set up shop in me. Do the backstroke in me. Make your home in me. I want you to know my love, to live in my love, to be filled in my love. That's what I long for with you. Which is why the first miracle that Jesus ever does is the wine at a wedding because the first thing he has to teach his followers is, hey, you realize that this is all about divine love, right? Let, let me kick this off with a bang. Let's love each other. Hey, by the way, you guys should love each other. No, we just like need to know more things. No, love each other. Yeah, but not divine communion. Yes, divine communion. Love each other. Commune, have fellowship. And we are confused about that. We're absent of that. And we are complicit in destroying that, oftentimes in the name of loving this Jesus in a way that is not actually love and has nothing to do with divine communion. Okay, so if, if we are starting to preach the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ, we cannot do that without first properly and appropriately and adequately describing what the problem with the world is, and this is the problem with the world. There is no divine communion. Nobody has any idea that there should be divine communion. And in the name of God, we continue destroying and putting barriers up against divine communion. More than that, even as we find ourselves saying, I want divine communion. Yeah, you're right. I haven't seen that as the goal for my life before. 
Yeah, you're right. As I do some introspection, I see some ways where I've prohibited that and blocked that and broken that. Oh, man, but, but I want that. What do I do? The fourth piece of this puzzle is that we are so lost and so helpless and so impotent, so caught up in this cosmos, this world system that doesn't want divine communion, tries to keep us from divine communion, that's built around not having divine communion, that we know and love and have literally built our houses in. And we find ourselves powerless to do anything about it. This fourth point here is huge. You don't have to keep, you don't have to know exactly what one through three are. But number four here is huge. When we talk about sin, when we talk about what the cross is doing, when we talk about the brokenness of humanity, when we talk about what needs to happen, if we don't get to the point of, wait, we are helpless and dying and complicit in it and, oh God, if, if we don't get there, we do not understand what the New Testament and Old Testament as well, but we do not understand what the scriptures are saying about sin. And if we don't understand what the problem is, we can't understand what the solution is. If we don't understand what sin is, then we cannot understand what the cross is. And we end up with this wacky, well, the cross is about how, God, how much God hated somebody and he was going to explode in anger eventually. And so he decided to do it on his son first. Okay. Let me tell you one more story and then I'll actually get to the Gospel of Mark. Um, this is kind of like a cosmological, apocalyptic story. Maybe those aren't words you use in everyday conversation. They are words I use in everyday conversation. Uh, maybe I'm just a super weirdo. Um, but, but this giant picture of the brokenness of the world and the hope of the world and the work of Jesus, this giant picture, I didn't make up. This isn't just, hey, Zach had some brilliant insight. This isn't, well, I'm a really good arguer from the stage and now I've convinced you of it. This is, this is none of that. This is what the apostle Paul himself argued was at the heart of the gospel. I know maybe you've never heard that. I, I know maybe you've heard that or had it like kind of quickly moved by. Like, I know we haven't, like, imbibed this as, oh, this is the problem, and this is the solution, this is the gospel. I, I know maybe we've, we've never heard that, but that's not because I'm making it up. Here's what Paul says, literally in the opening of Galatians 1. He says, the cross is liberation, snatching us out of the grasp of the present evil age. The cross is liberation, it is when God snatched us out of the grasp of the present evil age as Christ gave up his very own life for our sins. My only point in this is not for you to memorize Galatians 1.4. My only point in this is Zach made none of this up. You see... There's this cosmic battle going on. It's the reason there's demons in the Gospels. 
You you didn't just need to become a better person. You do need to become a better person. You need to stop agreeing with the demons and working on behalf of the demons, right? Like, there, there, there is that aspect. But sin is this cosmic power that is destroying all communities. What is sin? Sin is the rupturing of communion. Sin is the opposite of love. This sin that we are complicit in, that we are guilty by, that we need the cross for, that we need freedom from, is a cosmic power that is destroying all communities. Let me read you one final quote, and then I'll actually, I promise, move to Mark. Um, Here's the thing. In Jesus, in the incarnation of Jesus, what's happening on the cross is God is invading the world in order to bring it under his own liberating control. This is from a theologian known as uh, J.L. Martin. He says, God wouldn't have to carry out an invasion in order to merely forgive erring human beings. There would be no need for incarnation or cross or any of the actual work of Jesus, if the only thing is, hey, you should be a little bit better. Yeah, that that was pretty good. I know you tried hard, but you weren't perfect. Die, right? If, If God just needed us to be slightly morally better, then the incarnation and cross are not strictly necessary. So God would not have to carry out this invasion that he has merely to forgive erring human beings. The root trouble lies deeper than human guilt, and it's more sinister. The whole of humanity, indeed the whole of the cosmos, as Galatians 3.22 says, is in fact trapped and enslaved under the power of the present evil age. This is the background of God's invasive action in his sending of Christ, in his declaration of war, in his striking the decisive and liberating blow against the power of the present evil age on the cross. Praise Jesus, the one who has snatched us from the power of the present evil age on the cross by giving up his whole life for us. This is Paul's gospel. Okay. With all of that, let's get back to Mark. I promise we'll go faster. Probably not. Okay, so um, when I think about Mark, I think about Paul. Mark is the gospel that sounds the most like Paul to me. Take that for what it's worth. Mark 15, 33, Jesus is already on the cross. We've seen him rejected by Pilate. We've seen him nailed. When the sixth hour came, by this reckoning, this is about noon, When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Okay, so there's three hours of darkness here. Like suddenly the sun's just gone from noon to 3 p.m. Have you ever experienced that? Maybe you've seen like a solar eclipse for just a moment and you're like, oh, it got really cloudy. Nope, solar eclipse. Or maybe it did just get really cloudy and you're like, oh, it rained. You know, darkness over the whole earth, over the whole land, three straight hours. Now, um, sometimes we find ourselves in the weeds about things like this, and we're like, well, scientifically, how could this happen? Uh, like, fine question. Ask your scientific questions. I'm all about science, right? I, 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 you, you, I hope you guys know that. If you're brand new, like, I really, I, I mean that. Um, 
But also, I, I don't care about digging into the weeds in this personally. If, if you do, I will help you dig into the weeds on this. But, but I'll just tell you, the reason that I don't care about digging into the weeds on this isn't because I'm anti-science. It's because if I can believe that God became human and died and was dead for three days and then wasn't dead anymore, then the scripture's telling me, hey, there was darkness for three hours. I'm like, eh, okay, whatever. Okay. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So for three hours, there's darkness, and then Jesus finally shouts, God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? Now, as an aside, this is where that line in the song sort of comes from, right? This how deep the Father's love for us, the Father turns his face away that I, that I think is so cringy. People are going to point to this as saying, this is where it says it. The problem is, it's not actually what's said. Um, you, you understand there's, there's a big difference in like ontological reality and our perception of that reality. Here's what I mean. Um, I think Jesus is experiencing like the utter dregs of sin and suffering and death. I think this is really awful and he feels and is experiencing something like abandonment. I think to be theologically nitpicky, we're being really weird if suddenly the father and the son are like ripped apart. I think the whole of cosmos undoes at the destruction of God. I don't think like the universe exists anymore. It doesn't make any sense for that to actually happen. More than that, theological quibble, it's not what the rest of this psalm is. What Jesus is doing here is he is quoting a whole psalm, right? This is the first line of a song. There are no titles for these songs. There are the first lines of the songs. So if, if I stand up here, um, and I don't know why this song is in my head. Actually, I do know why this song is in my head. If I say, in West Philadelphia, born and raised, like all of the rest of you, like you kind of got the rest of the song. Even like you young folks, I, I mentioned Twister a couple of weeks ago and people are like, what's Twister? It's not that they had never seen Twister, it's that they didn't know of the existence of Twister. Now, I'm 39, all of you guys who are older than me, like feel dread, this is wow. Okay, um, <clears throat> here's my point, is even in this, like we quote the first line of the song, everybody knows the rest of the song. Everybody knows the title of the song, everybody knows the artist of the song, everybody knows that it has to do with the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and Will Smith. Quoting these psalms by their first line in a community that collectively sings these psalms over and over and over and over and over, year after year after year, everybody knows the whole psalm. This is not a standalone verse. Jesus is directly quoting Psalm 22. What we're going to do on uh, Friday night, 7.30, Good Friday service. Good Friday is weird because some of you guys weren't raised in like liturgical leaning churches. Good Friday is uh, probably one of my two favorite services of the year. It is powerful. It is short. It is moving. And what we do is we kind of deconstruct this saying from Jesus on the cross and kind of reread a bunch of psalms over what's happening in the Gospels. And it is this powerful, worshipful Good Friday event that we're like, Wow. Okay, um, so you should come 7.30 Friday. We'll be done before 8.30. Um, there is child care for young kids if you need it. Okay, um, 
So here, here's my very short. Th- this doesn't mean what it says because it can't theologically, too. It's not what Psalm 22. Psalm 22 does not end this way at all. And three, it's not the way Mark uses it. Okay, so I'm not making argument two. Argument two is going to be made Friday night. I'm not making argument one. There's a theological argument, but that's real nerdy and you don't want to hear that. I am making argument three. This cannot mean the father turns his face away because that is not the way Mark uses it. Mark does not say God abandoned Jesus on the cross and God abandoned humanity. That's not the story of Mark. And in fact, I want you to continue reading. The whole purpose of this morning's message is to show you this. Now, verse 35, when some of the bystanders heard Jesus, Jesus is nailed up, he's suffering, it's been dark for three hours, he's cried out, Eloi, Eloi! And and I guess maybe some of them didn't quite understand what he was saying, and they're like, look, he's calling for Elijah. Eli, 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 I don't know. Like, they, they somehow miss here, and they're like, he's calling for Elijah, this Old Testament prophet who was dead, and he's supposed to come back, and like, he, he's looking for Elijah. Little do they know that Mark already told us Elijah came back, and it was John the Baptist. It's the whole thing. Verse 36, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. They put it on a reed, and they gave him a drink, saying, let's see whether Elijah will come take him down. Let's prolong his suffering and taunt him and continue to mock him, which is one of the major themes of the past couple weeks. Let's take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. With loud cries and tears, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus cried out to his father. Was Jesus heard by his father when he cried out with loud cries and tears? The father turned his face away. Nope. Except literally what the rest of the verse in Hebrews is, is, and he was heard. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm belaboring this point a bit. Verse 38, in the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, from God's direction to ours. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way Jesus breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the less, and Joseph and Salome. When he was, or Salome, and he was in, when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, and there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. I just want to point out, Luke does actually even more than, of this than Mark does. Paul does it again, like you read Romans 16, like you're just like, wow, there were like women in the New, wait, what, there were women in the New Testament? There were like women leaders and women teachers and women preachers and like, wait, women in the New Testament? What are you talking about? The New Testament is really emphatic about this. We've ended up in this like really weird place where we ignore it and argue against it and try to use Paul's words against it. Although it's really funny to like take one verse of Paul and say, he says you can't have women. And then like you look at Paul's life and you're like, then Paul's a giant hypocrite because he has like all these women that he's learning from and empowering and like raising up as leaders in the church. Like what's he doing? Actually it makes the most sense that maybe we've just misunderstood Paul. So, So what Mark is doing friend of Paul, is telling us how much Jesus' ministry depended on these women. Verse 42, when evening had already come because it was preparation day, right? This is in the middle of, of, of Passover feast. Because it was preparation day, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came. He was a prominent member of the council that had just condemned Jesus to go be tried by Pilate and die. So this prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God 
He gathered up his courage and he went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. But Pilate wondered if he was dead already. And he called the centurion, this guy who commands like a unit of 100 soldiers, century, right? And he questioned them as to whether Jesus, is he really already dead? To, to Mike's point last week, a, a lot of times when, when we think that the cross is about like G, God had to torture someone and so Jesus had to die the most torturous death he possibly could have died, then we're like, wait, but they're saying this was a relatively short crucifixion. Like Pilate, actually one of the data points in the text is, wait, he's already dead? Really? Huh? What a wimp. Right, that, that's not what he says, but like, there's kind of like some implication here. Ascertaining this, verse 45, from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. So, yep, he's dead. You can have his body. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. Right, this is like a big tube. Like everybody kind of shares graves, and your body gets inserted into this tube like an MRI machine. You get thrown in there for a year until you rot enough, and then they take all your bones and they put them in a bone box so they can put somebody else in your hole. Um, Which is like crazy that what is being told to us in this moment is the God of the universe who became human was wrapped in a sheet and put in a wormhole to rot for presumably the next year until they could take his bones out. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. See, we read this and we're like, it's dark. Started off by telling us it was dark for three full hours. And then Jesus screamed, and then he was dead, and then they put him in a wormhole. But I think Mark wants us to see more here. I think he wants us to see more partially because of this cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think part of what Mark wants us to see is he wants us to go back and read Psalm 22 and see what actually happens. I think Mark also wants us to carry on and read chapter 16, but we'll do that next week. Um, but, but here's the other thing that literally Mark has prepared us for, and because we've been droning on about this for two years, you're like, I don't remember um, being in chapter 11 much less being in chapter 1 or chapter 9. Well, let me, let me remind you what happens in chapter 1 and chapter 9. Okay, so this, this tearing of the temple curtain, right? So Jesus is up there, he screams, it's dark, he dies, and all of a sudden the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. Um, in, in just like basic terms, whether you're Jewish or whether you're pagan, like whatever, there, there's often a curtain that separates the masses from the divine, like the way that you protect yourself from too brilliant, too briny, too, too, too shiny, too like overwhelming direct contact with God is there's a veil that keeps the presence of God from exploding on the people. So to, to rip a curtain either means that God's not there anymore and is abandoned, or it means all of a sudden that God is about to pour out and flow onto everyone around beware. This tearing of a curtain, in other words, is something to do with revealing divine nature. 
There's revelation when there's tearing of the curtain. There's something about God that we couldn't see and now we can see it. Either he was never there or he's not there or he's abandoned or suddenly we are going to see something that we've never seen before. Mark, just just in framework, is preparing us and baiting us and asking us, huh, I wonder what they saw. Wait, why is the why is the curtain torn? Okay, so my whole thing is, hey, we, we can read through this fast and miss all of this. I think Mark is inviting us to dig deeper through some of the nuggets that he's given us, like, like quoting Psalm 22 and like telling us about the divine curtain tearing and then pairing these couple of things together with what happens earlier in the Gospels. So after the curtain tears and Jesus cries his last, the centurion who's at the cross of Jesus says, Behold, this truly was the Son of God. This is the third time in the Gospel of Mark that somebody has said, wow, that's the Son of God. I'm not going to quiz you all, but numbers one and number two happen in chapters one and chapter nine. They happen at the baptism of Jesus and the transfiguration of Jesus. Both previous times, they come apparently from the lips of God himself. Okay, so in Mark chapter 1, what happens is Jesus is baptized and the sky tears open. And all of a sudden, there's a tearing. And there's somehow the presence of God. Not the absence of God, but the presence of God who shouts, you are my beloved son. And then there's a dove. More indication, more revelation, more proof of God's like actual Presence and favor and activity, and all of a sudden the Spirit of God descends on Jesus. Okay, so we've got tearing, we've got revelation, and we've got this is the Son of God, repeated in chapter 1 and repeated again here in chapter 15. You know what? The same things happen in chapter 9 when Jesus takes his couple of best friends, goes up on a mountain, like Moses goes up on a mountain, he comes down and his whole face is glowing, except Jesus' whole being is glowing because not only is he in the presence of God, he is God in the flesh. And they all cower and they're like, oh my word, who is this? And again, a voice comes from the clouds and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So there's heavenly activity, like activity in the skies and pronunciation of sonship and something about divine revelation. We get something about the Spirit, something about the Son, apparently something about the Father. And here on the cross, in the midst of darkness, we find ourselves saying, wait, I thought darkness was because God wasn't there. And I thought Jesus saying you've abandoned me indicated that God had abandoned him. I thought God wasn't here. And Mark's like, what happens when the sky rips open? What happens when there's a proclamation about the Son of God? What happens? Is God absent or is he present? Mark has been preparing us for this. At which point we say, oh my word. Wait, what? Let let me give you one more thing that Mark is referencing here. The problem with reading your New Testament is it is so literarily magnificent. It is chock full of illusions that we miss all the time. Um, another illusion that Mark is pretty clearly making here is to Amos chapters, chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. Let me, let me just read you that. 
It will come about in that day, declares Yahweh, God, that I will make the sun go down at noon. Amos is written like seven centuries before Jesus. Mark's saying the sun went down at noon. Amos is saying, behold, it's going to come about in judgment day when I show up. It's going to get dark. It will make the earth dark in broad daylight. I will turn your festivals into mourning and grieving. You're like, this happens at Passover. Wait, you're telling me that seven centuries before Jesus, there's a prophecy that there's going to be darkness at noon and there's going to be a festival ruined. All your songs will turn to lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins. I will bring baldness on every head. These are signs of curse. I will make it a time of mourning as if for an only son. And the end of it will be like a bitter day. Okay. here's, Here's, I think, what Mark is doing here. Because, because this is what happens, right? There, there's a historical thing of what, what is God doing and telling us this and then the actuality. But like also literally as, as an author, what is Mark wanting us to see here? I think he's wanting to, us to see this expectation of divine wrath and judgment. God says, hey, you guys suck and I'm gonna show up and I'm gonna fix it. You guys are longing for the day when I show up. You are longing for the day of the Lord, but let me tell you, it is not a day of sunshine. It is a day of darkness and dread. It's not a day of mercy and marshmallows and rainbows. It's a day of judgment and wrath. And then all of a sudden we have the divine one, God himself, show up. And Mark wants to tell us, you know what happens when God shows up? It's a day of darkness and mourning and suffering as if this was the loss of the only son. And all of a sudden, the separation between God and humanity is torn. And we stand open-mouthed and say, oh my God, God has shown up in this day of darkness, not light. And yet somehow it's him on the cross and not us. This prophetically promised judgment arrives and yet it's not on us. It's on God's very own self. And somehow in this act he brings us forgiveness and liberation and a reordering and reconfiguration of the cosmos. Let me give you my my very brief view of what's going on here. God and humanity are finally fully converging. It's not just that Jesus is a little bit like us, but fully locked in, clicked in convergence and attachment. Where God himself is placed under the darkness of sin and death to such an extent that he also collapses. And yet somehow in this convergence, the curse on us is also put on him and this curse is broken because we're no longer alone. With the power of God being what it is, this collapse was not the final word. This may have been the convergence point on the cross. 
But now Jesus is dragging us all together with himself back to life and joy and redemption because next week, surprise, surprise, re- resurrection is coming. You see, what, what is happening is that the curtain is torn and all of a sudden, the separation between humanity and God is, is destroyed. And all of a sudden, we look and we say, here's our God. And we stand at this senseless place, befuddled and confused and finally confronted with the reality of the only God who exists, who doesn't just want us to be better, but wants us to be completely turned upside down, completely remade, completely renewed, completely changed by being brought into divine communion, which he's brought in a couple of ways. One, by just clicking into the place on the convergence of you all are suffering under sin and death, so will God. In a freeing and liberatory way also. But two, there's a tearing of the curtain where no longer you separated from God, but finally you have access. You need no more temple. You need no more religion. You, know, you need no more law or religious observation. You need divine communion. And all of that comes to pass in the cross of Jesus, even in the Gospel of Mark. Now, there's a lot here. Um, Here's really what I want to challenge you to do this week. More than try to work through, like, how do I make sense of this theologically? If you want to do that, let's continue talking. Um, talk with each other, talk with me, talk with the other pastors on staff. Let's, let's do that. But more than any of that, what I want you to do is I want you to recast in your own minds and hearts, in your own prayer lives, I want you to worship the Jesus. I want you to worship the God who is made one with you who is now one spirit with you. And that sounds blasphemous, and yet that also is a direct quote of the New Testament. Somehow converging with you in permanent attachment to rescue you, to free you. He himself has collapsed under the weight of sin and death. He who knew no sin was made sin so that we might become the rightness and righteousness and justice of God. The work of the cross isn't the hatred of God. The work of the cross is the love of God to the extent that he would come and invade and win, not by slaughtering, but by being slaughtered. Not by mocking, but by being mocked. Not with power, but with weakness. Not with wisdom, but with absurd foolishness. This is our God. This is the God of the cross, and this is the God we pray to, and we will stand and worship. Let's pray. God, um, forgive me for my own confusion about who you are, my own muddying the waters about who you are. Let us see that you are the God who is revealed in the cross. That somehow on this prophetically prescribed day of judgment, this day of darkness and mourning and ruining of a festival, that it's you that's hanging there. Behold, it's you. God, let us look and let us see, let us marvel. Let us understand your vast love for us. You didn't abandon your son on the cross and you haven't abandoned us, but you've gone to amazing depths to rescue us, to reconnect us.
to commune with us in our suffering, in our hurting, in our longing, in our doubts, in our feelings of abandonment. God, starting now, would you help me to make my home in you? Would you help us to make our homes in you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor, or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.